Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. Well, amen. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, if you would turn to the 51st Psalm and we will look at the second part of a two-part message entitled, A Proper View of God, the, the Key to Spiritual Healing. And if you weren't here last week, I want to bring you up to speed rather quickly. And for you who were here last week, I want to give you a quick review and, and do that all at the same time. But we see this 51st Psalm as a psalm of repentance. Uh, King David, as we know, was a, approached by Nathan, the prophet, Nathan bringing David's sin to his attention. David had, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he attempted this major cover-up. And we know as the story goes, he had Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, the Hittite. Uriah was then sent to the front lines where David knew that he would ultimately die, David placing him there, in fact, so that he could. So that hopefully no one would ever find out about his wretched relationship with Bathsheba. However, God knew and God sent in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan, a man of God, to confront David on his sin. And David did as all men and women of God do when confronted by sin. He agreed. And he realized this, that he was in fact guilty of the sin as charged and that he had committed adultery and ultimately committed murder, then went into a cover-up. We see in Psalm 51, David's psalm and cry of confession and repentance. And as I told you last week, oftentimes people look at this psalm and they simply look at that. What are the ingredients? What are the keys to proper confession, proper repentance? And, and many times they miss so much of the meat or the truth that is here in this psalm. And that is the truth that David did understand. David understood that his repentance was not going to bring spiritual healing and restoration. His rituals, as religious as they could be, were not going to bring healing or restoration. What we're going to see as we looked last week, as we started this, he relied on the person of God, his characteristics, his attributes. David was fully aware of all of those attributes, and he's going to bring them out. We saw last week he brought out some attributes in this, and I don't want you to miss that. Because the key to David's restoration, his spiritual healing, was not David's repentance, as we mentioned. It is the God who David knew. In fact, David was referred to as a man after God's own heart. He knew him intimately. Last week we saw this as he cried for mercy in verse 1. He said, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. David immediately petitions the mercy of God because he knew that he is a merciful God. Where would we be if God were not a God of mercy? I can tell you where Kirk Hall would be. Kirk Hall would be in hell for all eternity because Kirk Hall is a transgressor. I can tell you where David would be. He would be in hell for all eternity because he was an adulterer and a murderer. He was a sinner just like the rest of you and just like me. But thanks be unto God, David is showing us here so that we can understand that God is a God who is merciful though it make no human sense to us, because in our human state we hold grudges. In our human states we withhold forgiveness. David wanted us to understand and wants us to understand today that God is a merciful God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your... And then he says this, unfailing love. The reason that he could count on the mercy of God was because he understood the love of God. And he didn't just say, according to your love, he said your unfailing love. God's love is unfailing to those who are His own. Are you thankful for that this morning? That His love never, ever, ever fails. In fact, we saw last week many times that the psalmist says, your love endures forever. Your love endures forever. Your love endures forever. We could go on and go on and go on and never exhaust how many times we need to praise Him for His unending love. David knew this unfailing and unending love. 
He knew that was a description of his God. Not only that, he goes on to say, according to your great compassion. David not only knew that he was a merciful and loving God, but he's a compassionate God. And what is this? That means he actually puts his love into action. When we talked about Romans chapter 5, verse 8, how God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm so thankful that I didn't just get an email from God saying that I love you. Because that would not have been the exercise of his compassion. I'm thankful that we have received a demonstration of his compassion. The fact that Christ obediently endured death and death on a cross in your place and in my place and in the place of all who will trust in him. David understood this compassion of the Lord, that he is a compassionate God. He then moves as we read on. He says this, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David understood God to be a forgiving God. God who is slow to anger, full of compassion. The forgiveness of God, not talked about nearly enough in our times together, in the church services that are going on around the world right now. We talk about so many things, but we are dependent upon God's forgiveness. Because without His forgiveness, we stand Condemned, why? Because he's holy. David knew that. Look what he writes next. He says, for I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. He says, I know who I am. I'm ever plagued with sin. And he says this in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says, God, you are holy. David understood that attribute of God, that he is holy. That unless a holy God forgive us of our sin and give us full pardon, We will stand before him in righteous judgment. David is highlighting that forgiveness of God in light of his holiness. That he is holy, but yet he is forgiving. And David doesn't try to make any excuses as we saw last week. He goes on and he says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Just before that, he said, So that you are right and proved right when you speak and are justified When you judge, God was speaking about David's condition. What does the Word of God say about man's sinful condition? There's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after him. Don't be deceived. In your carnal, unredeemed state, you are not not seeking God at all. Not one fiber or cell of your being is seeking God. You are seeking your flesh. David understood, Lord, what you say about me is right. Surely I was sinful at birth. Surely I am totally depraved. Nothing good in me. David postured himself properly, didn't he? Lord, you're right. You're just. You're holy. I am surely sinful from birth. He puts himself in juxtaposition to the Lord. Total opposite. Saying, you're holy and I'm filled. I would that the church of God understand that. They would appreciate the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God in Christ so much more if we really understood who we really are. It's not to beat you up. It's it's not to brow, uh, beat you or blast you in any way. Simply to tell you the truth, as David discovered the truth, I am nothing. God is everything, and everything that he says is right and just, and he is holy. I stand condemned before him. Barring his other attributes, I'm in eternal danger. Verse 6 is where we'll pick up today. After David highlighted those things, that God is merciful and loving and compassionate, forgiving, holy, right, and just, he says in verse 6, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Verse 7 says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin." And blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He says in 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. He understands this. That's exactly what's happening in his life. 
Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. As we look at this again, we are not just only analyzing David's repentance and confession, though those things are important. What I want us to do is I want us to analyze and to understand the attributes of God that David is fully aware of here, that he is highlighting for us. And the first thing that he starts with is this, that he knows that he is speaking to a God of truth and wisdom. Look what he says there in verse 6. He says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. David here looks to God and the character of God, and he realizes this. God is not only the God of truth. He is truth. Does that know what Christ said himself when he was here on this earth? I am truth. Is that not who he was here proclaiming to be? The way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by Him. We see God being truth is revealed to us in the incarnation of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this about the Lord. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. David understood the depths of this truth, that you were not going to fool a God who is a God of truth. He said, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. He said, I'm not going to fool you by just acting as if I'm walking in truth. You desire the truth that I walk in to be your depths of truth that are living inside of me. Not my own reasoning, not my own philosophy, not my own understanding, not my own humanistic ideas. You desire deeper truth. You desire truth in the inmost place. He knows that God will not accept pretentious, outward truth, but desires inward truth in the realm that God alone sees. Many have said this, you are what you are when you're all by yourself. And that could be true to a degree. Let me take it a step further. You are what God says that you are inwardly. He decides because he is truth and he desires truth in the inmost place of your being. Isn't that what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when David was being anointed king by Samuel. It says in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Remember the scene? Samuel looking with human eyes, looking over at the crowd of all of David's brothers. It seemed as if one of them were a better candidate. God looks to the depth of our inmost being. He knew who his king was, for he had raised him up sovereignly and gave him the heart that was a heart after God. David understands this. You desire truth in the inmost places. David also knew the key to understanding that truth is not his own interpretation of that, but the wisdom that comes from God. Look what he says next. He says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts, and you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Oh, many times we forget about God's indwelling wisdom and His discernment that is in each of us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. David knew this, the key to avoiding future encounters with sin 
key to avoiding falling into the same trap that he had already fallen into. The key was not his own wisdom or his own reasoning. He knows what that got him, right? He looked out over the rooftop and he saw there Bathsheba bathing. Oh, and his own reasoning was she was appealing to his eyes and appealing to his flesh. He joined her in an immoral relationship. He knows what his own wisdom gets him. He's saying here, Lord, I need your deep wisdom for you to unfold truth to me. I need wisdom from God. Isn't it James who says that if you lack wisdom, and he's talking about godly wisdom, ask God for that wisdom. We live in a day and time when truth is relative to whoever it is that is bearing that without any regard to the wisdom and truth of God. What does God say about each and every issue in our life? David's saying, you, Lord, impart wisdom, you and you alone. Job understood this same line of thought in Job chapter 12. Job says this in verse 13, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are His. Church, we must learn to, even in the midst of needing spiritual healing, we must learn to trust in the wise counsel of God, not in our own emotions, not in our own feelings, not in in whatever secular humanism is spewing. We must trust in the inner wisdom of God. Not only did Job trust in that, and David trust in that, we see Daniel speaks of this. We know he was interpreting a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. But in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel says this in verse 20, Praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and season. He sets up kings and disposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with Him. I think and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. Where did Daniel get the wisdom and power to interpret the dreams? He knew that it did not come from himself, but it came from that wisdom, that wisdom that God had imparted to him in his inner being. And he says, you have made known to us the dream of the king. He was praising God for the discerning Wisdom that God had given him to interpret this dream. David here understanding the same principle when he says, teach me wisdom in the inmost place. You do this. I can't receive this in any other way. He said, I must rely on you and your wisdom. Many of us have made the same mistake in life, haven't we? I'm not talking about adultery and murder. What I'm talking about here is we have relied on our own wisdom when tempted. We have relied on our own understanding when tempted. David says, I cannot do this because I know your desire, Lord. You desire truth in the inner parts, and you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. David knew this. If my life is ever going to be clean on the outside, I must trust in God's truth and wisdom on the inside. Have you found yourself there in your life? Not trusting in you, not following your wicked, deceitful heart, trusting in the wisdom, truth of God, the truth and wisdom from God. Well, if you need spiritual healing in your life today, just as David did in this psalm, he had to rely on truth and wisdom. What was truth and wisdom in this moment? David, you are a sinner. You are deserving of death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. However, I am a God of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and restoration, and I'm going to heal you, David. David understood this, that he's a God of truth and wisdom. Not only that, we see as we read on in this psalm, verse 7, he's a God of renewal and restoration. Verse 7 says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. What is he saying? That that we could lose his Holy Spirit today? Absolutely not. His Holy Spirit was abiding upon David for a specific task. Just as I told you last week, 
Just as the Spirit had abided upon Saul for a specific task, then that Spirit was removed. David says this, the worst thing that I can ever imagine is to not have the presence of your Holy Spirit. For those of us who are in Christ, according to the promise of the prophet Joel, at Pentecost we received the indwelling Holy Spirit, never to leave us, never to forsake us. He says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David hadn't lost salvation, as many try to proclaim here. He had lost the joy of salvation. How can any of you relate where you have lost the joy of your salvation because you willfully and rebelliously participated in sin? Immediately that joy is zapped from you. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Though this is a lengthy section, verses 7 through 13 speak of renewal and restoration. David knew this. David knew that the filth of his sin needed a complete renewal, cleansing, and restoration. And he knew that the only way to see this happen was to turn to God for cleansing. Watch how he does this. He borrows from the Exodus, and then from some Levitical teachings. He borrows, we know, from Exodus chapter 12. He says, cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21 says this, And then, then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb, just as God had instructed Moses to instruct them. Take a bunch of hyssop, Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. We all know that to be the Passover. We know this, that that was pointing to our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we see referred to in the New Testament. But what is hyssop here? And what is the significance of David borrowing this term, cleanse me with hyssop? I read everything that I could get my hands on this week about hyssop. You know what I realized? No one really knows exactly. Some say it's this plant. Some say it's that plant. Some say it grows as a vine. Some say it grows as as we would know it, as a weed in the cracks of the walls or the cracks of the pavement. As I pondered those things, thinking that they mattered, I realized that those things really don't matter at all. You know why David borrowed the term cleanse me with hyssop? Why he borrowed that from the Passover? Because it was the Passover lamb and his blood that was applied with that hyssop over the sides and the top of the doorway. Now, why is that important? You know why it's important? Because God said to do it that way. He said to do it exactly like this. You know what the importance of hyssop is here? David's not trying to clean himself up. Well, many of us have fallen into that error, our own selves trying to renew and restore us, right? Through our 12-step programs, through our counseling sessions, through this and through that and the other. David says this, no. I want to be clean, and I want to be clean God's way. And he goes all the way back to the Exodus, and he says, here's their protection. Here's how they were protected in the blood. He goes back to the Levitical teachings where sacrifices would have been, would have been dipped in that hyssop and then applied. He says, this is what I want. I want to be clean God's way. He goes back and he grabs that reference. Well, I pray today that you desire to be cleansed of your sin and restored God's way. On God's way is this, that redemption is only found and atonement is only found in the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the one who the Passover lamb pointed to. He is the one and the only one who shall cleanse us with hyssop, mixed with his blood. He is the only one that shall remove our sins and our iniquities, all of them, because he is the one who truly did take away the sin of all who would believe. Remember the author of Hebrews? What does he say? He says that the blood of goats and the blood of bulls could not remove your sin. It was an annual reminder of sin. But there is one, the great high priest, Christ, the sacrifice once for all who has removed all of our sin. Are you thankful for that 
for restoration and renewal because of cleansing God's way. David said, I want to be cleansed according to your will, Lord. He was in need of restoration because he had been devastated by his sin. Look what he says in verse 8. After he asked for cleansing with hyssop to be washed whiter than snow, he says, I'm filthy. I'm dirty. Surely I was sinful at birth. I am as black as night. But though my sin be like scarlet, it shall be whiter than the snow. He said, cleanse me in that way, Lord, according to your cleansing. My efforts will never do enough. Did you know that your efforts are never going to cleanse you from your sin? If you're thinking that you came to church today and somehow that's going to count for something when you stand before God, you're wrong. If you're thinking that you can obey some set of rules, some law, thinking that it's going to account for you righteousness, you're wrong. The only righteousness that is going to be credited to your account is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is a righteousness, Romans says, from God, apart from the law. You must trust in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, and His righteousness, and that alone. David, in verse 8, crushed. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. What is David saying here? Is David really saying that God has crushed him? Because of his disobedience? Yes, he is. He is saying that I am under the staunch, strict discipline of God. That God has put his hand of discipline on me because I willfully disobeyed him. And I'm paying the price for it. Crushed under the weight of my sin. But he knows there's hope. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed Rejoice. He knows what it's like to walk with God. He's a man who has walked with God. He knows the joy and the gladness that it brings when you're in right standing with your Creator. He also knows the sorrow that comes upon a true man of God when he's out of the will of God. And he says to the Lord in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. When he says, Hide your face from my sins, you know what he's saying? God, don't look at me any longer with indignation. God cannot look at your sin with anything other than indignation. He says, Lord, look away from me because I know how unpleasing I am to you in and of myself. Unless my sin is atoned for, unless my sin is covered, Unless I receive pardon from you, I know this. All I have to look forward to is your indignation and your wrath. Please turn your eye from me, Lord. David was crying out to God here. Oh, see his cry. He's in agony. Well, I believe this. When a person is truly saved, when they are truly redeemed, they come to God first in agony over their sin. Grieving. Realizing, because the Holy Spirit has allowed them to realize their sinful condition. Surely you were sinful at birth, their total depravity. And they know that God should exercise His judgment and His wrath upon them, His indignation. But instead, God sovereignly chooses to exercise renewal and restoration. David is acknowledging that as he's crying out to the Lord. He cries out for some things here. I'll break them down quickly for the sake of time. We've already talked about a few of them. He cries out for cleansing and pardon. Lord, cleanse me with this, and I'll be clean. Pardon my sin. Cleanse me because I'm at your mercy. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Relieve me from the hand of your discipline. Judgment in my life. Then he says this, as he cries out to the Lord, create in me a pure heart. Create in me a pure heart. Why does he say it like this? He goes all the way to the Creator. He sees God as Creator here, knowing this, that his old heart is not fit. Why? Because his heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? He cries out to God, and he knows that a God who is Creator, is His only hope of receiving a new heart. 
It's different from his sinful heart. Is that not what Ezekiel prophesied about in Ezekiel 36? Verse 26, is that not what was fulfilled in Christ? Ezekiel said it like this in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. David desired a pure heart, a new one. Created by God. Instead of that old sinful heart corrupted by sin. And I say this to you, church, when the world tells you to follow your heart, please don't listen. Your heart is wicked on its best day. When the world tells you to follow your heart, refuse to do so. And pray as David prayed, create in me a pure heart, O God. A heart that beats for you. A heart that longs for you. A heart that leads me to obediently serve you. David cried out for God, for his cleansing, pardon. He says, then I need a pure heart from you, Lord. Create in me this. And then he says, a steadfast spirit. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. What is David saying? I'm tired of all of the mess that I have made. I'm tired of the inconsistencies of life. He says, create in me a consistent spirit. Oh, David knew that in and of himself, he was up and he was down. He was high. He was low. You don't believe it? Read the Psalms. He was up. He was down. He was high. He was low. He was walking with God one moment, singing praise with joy and gladness, and the next moment, he's committing adultery and murder. He says, I'm tired of all the topsy-turvy in my life. Created me a steadfast spirit, consistent across the board, focused on you. Let me fix my eyes on you. Is that not what the New Testament says, that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith? He says, created me a steadfast spirit. He cries out for that. Oh, would you cry out to the Lord for that in your life today? Willing and steadfast spirit. And then, he says, troubling things. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He said, where would I be without the security of our relationship? Where would I be without the security of knowing you? He cries out to God for security and assurance. Because he finds security just as all of us would have to agree the only place that we find true security. This world could fall apart tomorrow. We find true security in the Lord, in his presence. He says the most devastating thing that I could ever experience was to not be in the presence of the Lord. Lord, let it not be so. Keep me secure with you. Aren't you thankful today that the Holy Spirit is that deposit, that seal, that guarantee in the lives of believers of the inheritance that we do have in Christ? Teaching us and showing us that we are secure. David said, I need this security. You need it as well, believer. To know that even when you blow it, there is still spiritual healing. There is renewal and restoration. Cry out to God for that. We see him cry out for that restoration. He says, restore, restore the joy of your salvation. David knew what it was like to have that joy, but he also knew what it was like to lose it. And if we had to be honest, if we walked with God any amount of time, we should testify, yes, and I know that same truth. I know what it's like to walk with God, to enjoy his presence, but I also know what it's like to rebel against him and to spit in his face just as David has done here. And that's the most miserable place for a true person of God. And if we find ourselves in that place this morning, it's not God in need of restoring your salvation. It's your need 
and God restoring the joy of the salvation that He has already purchased for you to have. Perhaps today some of you need that joy restored in your life because sin has taken its toll. I'll see what David is teaching us here. And then he says a willing spirit. He said, grant to me a willing spirit to sustain me. I don't want to keep doing the same old thing. I don't want to every time I walk out on the rooftop, lust after a woman, commit adultery, have her husband murdered at the front line. I don't want to fall into these traps that sin is setting. I don't want to overcome these things. I want to have a willing spirit. To be able to see the temptations of my flesh. Long for the things of God more than the pleasures of this life. The pleasures of my sin. I'll create in me a willing spirit. To sustain me. To hold me up. To keep me from those things. And then he says then. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. What is he saying here? He's crying out that God would build a testimony of renewal and restoration in and through him so that others who are in the same condition that he's in can hear the truth and be spiritually restored and healed and forgiven. Shouldn't that be the cry of all of our hearts? Oh, isn't that the crux of the gospel in a nutshell? I have been redeemed, therefore I want to tell everyone who is in need of redemption about the glorious riches that have been found in Christ. He said, do this work in me, Lord, and and when you do, I'll give you all the glory by testifying to who you are and your goodness, your ability to restore sinners. He said, I'll tell every sinner I know how you restore, how you renew, how you forgive, how you cleanse. Perhaps today, many of you find yourself in need of just that, spiritual healing, spiritual cleansing. Well, God can and does renew and restore even the most wicked of sinners. You say, well, how do you know? Because I once was one. Because I read about a man named David and I know all of his life murderous adulterer, completely healed, forgiven of his sin. And in Christ, we have access to all of these things that David is crying out for. Church, will you see that? Every single thing that he is crying out for, we have access in Christ. Cleansing and pardon, a pure heart, a steadfast spirit, Security and assurance in Him through the Holy Spirit. Restoration of joy and gladness. A willing spirit to sustain us. Testimony shared to others. How I once was lost in darkness and in sin. And Jesus rescued me from that, forgiving me and cleansing me, applying His sacrifice to my life just as the high priest would have applied the hyssop covered in the blood to the sacrifice in the law. David saw him as renewal and restoration. May we see him as that today. May you not buy into the lies that God cannot or would not renew or restore you. You are here today to hear this message so that he may. I pray that He open your eyes to the truth, your need for Him, that you cry out to Him in desperation just as David did today. We see next, as we continue to unfold this, he says in verse 14, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Well, the next characteristic that we see that David understands God is is Savior. He is Savior. David knew that the only way to have the guilt of his sin removed and to be saved eternally from the devastation of this sin was for God to sovereignly save him. In fact, Psalm 37, verse 39. The psalmist says this, The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. He knew that if he was going to be saved, 
He had to turn to God because God is the only one who can save. He's the only one who can lift the burden and the guilt of our sin. He's the only one who can remove it. It is He and He alone who saves us. That's why when Jesus came as God incarnate, He came with a purpose. And what was that purpose? Matthew chapter 1, 21 tells us this. What was His purpose as we're all thinking about this time of year? Verse 21 says this, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why is that so significant? Because it means the Lord, Jehovah, saves. He said you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Our God is a saving God. Oh, you can give him all the long lists that you want about how you've done too much wrong to be saved, and he can cancel out every single one of those wrongs by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. David understood he's a God who saves. There again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. As the prophet is quoted, the virgin will give birth and will be with the child, excuse me, and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And why did God come to be with us? Because He is a God who saves. Psalmist understood this. He's a Savior. I need Him to save me. I need Him to rescue me. He didn't rely on His own sacrifices. He didn't rely on His own rituals, religious as they may be. He's simply saying this, as we must say, the only hope that we have of being saved from our sin is because God is a Savior. And to cry out to Him to save us in the manner that He has prescribed that we be saved. And how is it that we are to be saved? Jesus came and He said that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. The way that the Father saves is through the precious sacrifice of His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is God in flesh. He is the God who saves. He is the God who David is speaking of here. As he cries out, Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves. That God who saves that David knew here in the Psalms is the God, according to Philippians chapter 2, who came to this earth incarnate, leaving the glory of heaven behind, becoming a man. Fully man, fully God. The God-man. Why? Because He is a God who saves. It was the only way to save sinners. David is reminding us of this God right here, the other side of the cross. The God who saves. Do you know this God? You know the God who saves. Have you cried out to Him to save you from your sin? Salvation is found nowhere else. In fact, there's no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. It's Jonah who said this in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, but, with, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. And then he says this statement, salvation comes from the Lord. You need to be saved from your sin, the blood guilt of your sin, because if you are like me, I can guarantee you this, you're guilty of every sin that you have been charged with. If you need salvation from that sin, that salvation comes from God, and God provided that salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His death, His burial, and His resurrection 2,000 years ago. Would you trust in Him as Lord and Savior today? And be saved. He is a God who saves, just as David has declared for us. As we read on in this psalm, we see next. Verse 15 through 17, that he is a God who is praiseworthy. David says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. His lips had to be opened. Look like some of you this morning singing the doxology. Open their lips, Lord. Show them all the reason that they have to give you glory and honor and praise, to acknowledge you, the top of their voice to sing and to shout and to clap their hands because they're overwhelmed at your goodness. He says, open 
My lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David knew that God is praiseworthy. He goes on to say this, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would, I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David knew that God deserved all of his praise because of who God is. He wrote in Psalm 117, Simply this, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all you nations, extol Him, all you peoples, for great is His love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. He knew He's worthy of all praise. But He also knew this. He also knew us just going worthlessly, haphazardly, through the motions, means nothing to God. He says, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. He said, me just going through religious motions are not what you deserve. True worship comes from a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Is that not what the psalmist says? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Where is the broken contrite hearts in the church of the living God these days. Well, we approach Him in humility with fear and trembling, and reverence and awe. We don't give Him our ritualistic efforts as if they count for something. We're overwhelmed by His goodness to us. We see just how praiseworthy He is according to His Word. It causes us to humbly fall on our face, to let go of our pride and our arrogance, and to praise God alone because He's the only one who is worthy of our praise. God deserves our authentic and sincere worship from a place of true brokenness and contrition. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, that's how we would approach God, that He would open our lips to praise Him with the right heart. And that is a broken heart. True contrition. We would lay our lives down in humility toward Him. Oh, this is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 12 where he speaks of living sacrifice. He says, therefore, I urge you in verse 1, brothers, in view of God's mercy, because you have received mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul understands what David is saying here. Because of all that God has done for, for us, we ought to be in a place of brokenness. Laying our lives down as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Him. This is our spiritual act of worship. This is acceptable praise. This is acceptable worship unto a holy God. David understands how praiseworthy his God is. He deserves so much more than just our outward religious motions that we go through or the rituals that cannot save us, cannot make us near to Him. David understands. He's worthy. Psalm 48.1, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Some of your manuscripts says, and greatly to be praised. Well, I would to God that He would raise up a people who understand this. We give more effort to our careers and our endeavors in this world than we do to praising God. David say, say, is saying here, may it not be so. May it not be so. May I overflow with praise to Him because He is worthy of all of our praise. May He break you today. May He break me today. May He break me each and every day. That I would humbly bow in His presence. That He would open my lips because my words do not do justice to His glory. Just as David was saying here, open my lips because my words do no good. Overwhelm me with who you are. And I'll praise you. And then we see next. He is a gracious God. 
Verse 18, he says this, seemingly out of place here. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Now, this is the king of Israel praying this prayer. It sounds quite selfish, doesn't it? Let's look at it a little deeper. Let's look at it a little further. Let's put it in its context. David understands the grace of God. David understands the restoration of God. He understands the spiritual healing that God is giving to him. And he also understands the grace of God. He asks that God would bless his kingdom. He says, then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. He says, God, if you will prosper my kingdom graciously, I will in turn give you glory by blessing your name through righteous sacrifices. Not, not half-hearted sacrifices. Not just barely skimming by. Not just going through the motions. Real righteous sacrifices from a right heart, from a right position. He boldly comes before the throne of grace. And how dare he ask God to bless him? But isn't that God's nature? To take once that person who was an adulterer and a murderer and to cleanse them with hyssop and to spiritually heal them and to renew them and to restore them and then to use them as a vessel for his glory and then lavish his grace upon grace upon grace into their lives. David understood this. He said, Lord, bless me. But I don't want the blessings for me. Oh, this is where the American train falls off the tracks. God bless us for us. He said, bless my kingdom. Because it's really your kingdom. And I will give you the glory for it all. By turning hearts and an entire kingdom to worship you properly. What a statement. He understands God is gracious. He wasn't trying to abuse His grace. He was simply walking in it. What a beautiful picture for us to see. I wake up every day thinking God the wife that he's given me, the children that he's given me, the church that he has allowed me the privilege to pastor, the people that he has placed under my care. Before I'm done thanking him for all those things, I can't help in my mind to think, but I deserve hell. But I'm reminded again and again and again and again, I am a God of grace. Where sin increased. Grace did that much more. Or sin decreased. Grace did that much more. Increase. And He lavishes us with blessing after blessing after glorious blessing. But do we stop to properly thank Him, to properly worship Him? David is doing that here. Thanking God for His graciousness, asking for a blessing only so that He can offer that blessing back to the God who restored Him. Church, when was the last time you asked for a blessing? And the intent of your heart was to receive that blessing only for the glory of God to in return give it back to God. Pointing others to Him and His glory. Oh, do you know this gracious God? This gracious God who we cannot even begin to fathom. I know He should have killed me for my sin. I know that He should kill us all for our sin. And we should all spend an eternity separated from His goodness and His love in a place called hell, 
under His wrath and His indignation because we are transgressors. Thanks be. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's rescued us from all of our sin. He's given us spiritual healing. He's lavished and continues to lavish His grace upon us over and over again. I can't help but think what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where he says, He who did not spare His own Son, the greatest treasure, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? David was thankful for a gracious God who would not only forgive him and restore him, heal him spiritually, but would then turn and somehow bless him. Do you know this God? You know a God who operates in this manner. If your God does not operate in this manner, you do not yet know the God of Scripture. A God who is slow to anger, who abounds in grace and compassion. Do you know this God? David has given us great insight into this God. It was his insight, in fact. It was the key to his spiritual healing. Perhaps you're going through a time right now in your life. You're in sin. You're struggling with sin. Know who God is. He is a God who is merciful, loving, compassionate, forgiving, holy, right, just. He is truth and wisdom. He is renewal and restoration. He is Savior. He is praiseworthy. He is gracious to the most wicked and vile of sinners. Oh, may He turn your heart toward Him today in faith and repentance, and may you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and receive everything that David knew God to be through the offering of Christ. Perhaps today you're still lost in your sin, never having trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We'll see in this message today that there is a God who will forgive you. And He will restore everything that sin has destroyed in your life. And not only that, He will bless you beyond anything that you can even imagine for all eternity. Would you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior today? Repenting and turning to Him and Him alone. Maybe you're saved here today. You know that. You're a believer. You've wandered away. Oh, David was a man after God's own heart before he committed adultery and murder. And he's now in the presence of God, a man after God's own heart, because it was God who gave him that heart. May you trust in that God today. May you see his attributes. May you run boldly to his throne of grace today in your time of need. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you the beauty of your word. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word. Lord, I pray today that in hearing the truth of who you are from the psalmist, I pray today you would draw sinners out of darkness into your marvelous light, drawing them unto yourself to receive salvation in Christ and Christ alone. Today, their sins would be forgiven and removed. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here today, who are struggling. I pray today that they run to you in brokenness and contrition, just as David did. They would receive all that our gracious God desires for them to receive this morning. May your will be done. May sinners repent and turn to Christ. May the saints be encouraged and restored today. We pray and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness. Thank you.